if the culture is sweep it under the rug because it is company policy to make us look good to the investor community. That's a big trouble sign. Hello and welcome to Off the Books, where we surf the uncharted waters of accounting, finance, risk, and wherever else the ways take us. This episode is brought to you by Workiva, the one platform where financial reporting, ESG, audit, and risk teams can work together and say they had a darn good time doing it. See it for yourself at workiva.com slash podcast. My name is Steve Soder, accounting enthusiast and Diet Coke aficionado. I'm looking forward to debiting a great conversation, and I'm so happy to have you with us. I'm also, as always, very happy to have Catherine Sai joining me. Catherine, can you please tell the fine folks who you are? I'm not an accountant or Diet Coke aficionado, but I like asking questions and learning new things. And I'm looking forward to doing more of that, especially because today we are talking about a hot study that's been making the rounds. Yeah, that's right. The study is called How Pervasive is Corporate Fraud? It was mentioned in Dealbook, the business newsletter of the New York Times, and it appeared in the Review of Accounting Studies. And from what we can tell, business leaders are all abuzz talking about it. It's getting a lot of attention because the authors of the study estimate that on average, 10% of large publicly traded firms are committing securities fraud every year, and only one third of corporate frauds are detected. It certainly piqued my interest, Catherine. Yes. So we asked Georgetown Law School professor Don Langvoort to dig into all of that with us. He's a former special counsel in the office of the general counsel at the SEC and friend of the show, Josh Gertsch, who is a former controller and has an audit background, is weighing in with an audit perspective. So I hope everyone has their Diet Coke and venti soy chais ready because here we go. So Don... 10% of large publicly traded companies, according to this study, are committing securities fraud. Maybe only one third of that corporate fraud is detected. What was your initial reaction to hearing those numbers? I, it's, it's the holy grail to, to try to come up with numbers like this that tell you with some apparent precision the, the extent of fraud in our marketplace. I, I don't think this study gets there, but it's provocative. And the one thing I will say at the outset is there are about five studies like this done in the last decade, and all of them come to a, a low double-digit estimate, somewhere between 10 and 20%. So this isn't way off base uh, compared to other studies, whatever you think about uh, the methodology in, in this particular study. So, Don, one of the questions that I had, and I actually noticed that, that you brought up a similar point in that uh, dealbook newsletter, what kind of fraud are we talking about here? It seems like the study uh, defines it very, very broadly, and as a you know, former accounting professional myself, there's a pretty big difference between you know, reporting fake revenue or maybe getting a little aggressive with you know, estimates on expense accruals or capitalization policies, or just making an outright error that was nobody's fault. It just happened and needed to be corrected. Yeah, that's right. And the, the authors of the study are honest upfront in saying they can't actually use data about actual frauds because they are rarely adjudicated in a court of law. So you will get settlements and you will get allegations and you will get complaints complaints by um, a, a plaintiff's law firm. 
And that's the data they have. So they deliberately define fraud in a way that none of us would consider an appropriate definition in the interest of tractability. Uh, fraud is an elastic concept. Uh, and as a result, um, finding data points uh, that give you that precisely uh, is next to impossible. And it seems like one of the factors for establishing fraud would be proving malicious intent. What does that actually look like today for an accounting or finance professional? And Josh or Don, feel free to weigh in. Yeah, I can jump in. I think when you, I mean, when you kind of look at the definition of fraud, I mean, I think that's what it comes down to. Like you're intentionally doing yeah. something. If you don't have that intention there, I mean, there are honest mistakes that happen or there are things that are quite frankly are immaterial or clerical errors that are just going to happen in the nature of business because they're not perfect. And so I think that intent has to be there. And more and more, I think the SEC is honing in on this pretty well on kind of they, they proposed some things recently and kind of how to address this. But I do think they kind of hit the head, the nail on the head a little bit that the intent to commit fraud, I think, has a lot to do with driving i mean quite frankly kind of driving the stock price one way or another just a little bit you know like i mean it's all about when you look at intent it's like how is that actually going to benefit the person that's that's doing it and i don't think we live in an age where back in the day when i was coming up through accounting school it was like oh we'll set up false vendors and we'll write checks to them and things like that and like the where you live in a far too sophisticated world now where there's too many checks and balances to do it that way so it is more on the lines of like, hey, we're going to put a number out there for revenue and we think the market's going to react this way and my stock options are going to go up or they're going to go down and I'm going to make more or less money on it. And so I think that intent and how it kind of flows through kind of the system where they actually benefit from it has changed quite a bit. And it's a lot more sophisticated than it used to be, honestly, on what they're trying to do there. That'd be my take. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. And to be clear, this study doesn't even try to capture what you just said is the definition uh, of intent. They're all one-offs. They're all data points. Like you got sued for fraud. That's a big difference between you got sued and you committed fraud. Uh, and since most of these cases are settled or dismissed, uh, they disappear without any judge ever telling us whether there was fraud or not. Um, that's a problem with the study. Uh, but again, the authors are at least uh, quite willing to acknowledge that problem. And, and I do think the picture they painted is a little bit accurate. Well, when you look at it holistically, they've kind of shown that this is a huge problem. So I don't know, it's interesting to kind of look at the different perspectives. When you take a step back, it's huge. But when you're looking at one particular company or one particular thing they're doing, it would never rise to the level of an investor making a different decision or doing something differently. So it's it's an interesting predicament. It, I think. it is an interesting predicament. Uh, again, they're using four different measures of what might be fraud. Um and none of which goes to the ultimate conclusion because we don't ever get it. Materiality, which is, you know, just another word for what you were saying, um, is an element, I think, in all four of their data sets. Um, so maybe we can forgive them a little bit. Uh, I, I think anything that is clearly immaterial at the issuer level uh, probably got washed out 
in their statistics. Uh, what I thought you were going to say, and I, I, I think for everybody listening to all this, um, another amazing thing that makes you pinch yourself about this study is it takes us back 21 years to the fall of Arthur Anderson and actually estimates the incidence of fraud 21 years ago. Then they extrapolate forward on the assumption, and again, they're honest about this, on the assumption that nothing has changed in this domain in the last 21 years. The, the conclusion you know, is a very short, sweet conclusion. It says Sarbanes-Oxley was all about solving this problem. This paper tells you nothing about whether Sarbanes-Oxley uh, did its uh, assigned task. Uh, so we could nitpick uh, all of the uh, all all of the methodological problems. Uh, that said, the, the question you first asked uh, really is the interesting one: Is the, are these numbers plausible? Stop playing, you know, nitpicking the, the methodology of this study. Uh, if you had to guess based on professional experience. Uh, is 10 to 20 percent um, somewhere in that range and, and theirs is at the lower bound of that? Uh, is that reasonable? Um, my sense is if you let me define fraud a little bit more loosely um, so that it's not malicious, but it is with some degree of awareness or reckless disregard, of the truth. We expand the universe of fraud considerably, and we do so within the bounds of the law. Um, do I think, do I think double digit um, estimates within that broad range? Uh, I wouldn't bet against it. So Josh, you think those numbers are plausible? Oh, I think so too. I think when you get into when you get into kind of what goes into the, like, I mean, I'm looking at it from an accounting angle and that's not necessarily what this is intended to be. But if you do expand that definition to, there are just so many judgments and assumptions that have to be made, or the we get into all these gray areas where you kind of have to pit, you kind of have to point something that there's so much uncertainty around, like they're never right, you know, to be honest with you. And so if you expand the definition, like he says, I mean, 20% might be conservative, quite frankly, if you're getting into errors or misjudgments or things like that, um, it, it, that wouldn't be implausible at all. I mean, coming from someone who's had to put that together, all the different pressures that are there, all the different judgments that you're making, that wouldn't be unreasonable at all to me. Yeah, and underlying uh, lots of accounting fraud cases, cook the books, uh, type cases um, are books and records that often obscure the truth rather than shed some light on it. And they often become the basis for an SEC enforcement proceeding. I remember one case where there was just a mess of boxes of paper records um, that somebody was filling out without regard to whether this was accurate or not, expenses and things like that. There were probably 10,000 violations of books and records there, uh, which when you put them together, uh, easily passes the materiality threshold and, uh, and awareness. Um, so 
again, I, I, I think the point all, all of us are coming to is let me def define fraud uh, in a way that's more realistic. And then, you know, the methodological problems here fade a little bit. Well, I want to get into that um, here in just a second. But first, we are going to take a very quick break from our sponsor and be right back. Today's episode of Off the Books is brought to you by Workiva. If you're at all like me, you were a nerdy kid who loved Greek mythology, hung out with the lunch ladies, and didn't have enough friends to actually play Dungeons and Dragons. What? I did not just reveal some light childhood trauma. No, this is all leading so Fine. <clears throat> so, dear listener, the Greek myth of Sisyphus describes Hades punishing the tyrant Sisyphus in the afterlife by making him roll a heavy boulder up a steep hill. When we get said boulder to the top of the hill, it rolls right back down to the bottom, a repetitive and useless task that drains the spirit. Maybe the act of repeatedly filling out the same reports and tracking down the right numbers feels like your own personal boulder. But unlike Sisyphus, you don't have to do it alone. The Workiva platform lets you automate repetitive tasks, orchestrates workflows, and turns your data and reports into reusable assets. So when you're at the top of the hill, take a breath and soak in that view. Discover all the benefits of using Workiva at workiva.com slash podcast. That's W-O-R-K-I-V-A dot com slash podcast. And we are back talking about the How Pervasive is Corporate Fraud study that, appeal, uh, that appeared in the Dealbook Business Newsletter of the New York Times. Um, we were talking uh, a moment ago about materiality, and it made me think just a little bit about the notion of how that plays out both with an FCC enforcement case. But Josh, maybe we'll start with you uh, when it comes to an audit. Let's say I am getting maybe a little bit aggressive in, I don't know, some kind of an expense accrual or something like that. I mean, if that is if that is immaterial from an audit standpoint, I mean, do you just pass? Yeah. Even if you suspect there might be something going on, do you just sort of maybe not forget about it, but <laughs> well, maybe just not do anything about it? Yeah, I'll be honest. I mean, like laying cards on the table if it is immaterial. And I, I will say with this caveat, if if there is no indication of fraud, which I guess is what the discussion is on, like if no red flags exist, you know, that are, that are blatantly obvious, you know, yeah, you pass on it. Like you, you are doing that audit at a certain level. And basically you are saying anything below this level, an investor would not, you know, change a decision whether to invest or manage, you know, their assets differently here or their investment. And so, yeah, if it doesn't, if it's above that level, like you move on because you don't have the time to do it. And what I find so interesting as I thought about this more, it's like, well, Maybe the one of the ways, if there is all this fraud out there that exists, and I think we've talked about it, that it's likely, do you lower the blades of materiality? And then you get into an issue if you do lower the blades and auditors go even deeper, the cost of compliance and yeah. dealing with that probably offsets the fraud that they're doing to some degree. <laughs> so it's kind of like, I don't even know, like it, it's a, it's there, there's a balance to this, to this whole thing. And I, I mean, I'll, I'll kind of leave it at that, but I do think. That materiality thing is hard. Now, if now I will say like fraud risk is different or fraud is different. If there are indications of fraud, you have to address it regardless of materiality. But there are so many ways, there are so many judgments that come into making the books and things like that, that if it's about if that materiality level isn't isn't low enough, you're you're going to drive on and you're going to move on and you're going to leave it alone, because if not, you'll never get that audit done. You won't comply with the regulations 
you'll lose the client if you're on the auditor side. Like there's, it, there, there's just too many consequences to not keeping that thing moving towards those kind of necessary deadlines. And, and Don, would it play out that way uh, with an SEC enforcement? Because I realize that materiality for SEC is going to be a little bit different within co- this context than auditing. But at the same time, the SEC can't go after every single immaterial thing. I mean, that's just impractical. Yeah. Um, it, one thing that has always fascinated me, and, and there's a really nice study on this, has to do with the slippery slope. I, I agree with everything Josh said. But from the SEC's perspective, in hindsight, they're going to come in because you missed something. It may have been a you know not a big red flag, uh, but you missed it. And there, there's a great financial economic study that set, that watches the typical SEC enforcement case in terms of how it rolled into being, and it's always one small step at a time. The first step is imperceptible, but you've done it once and you can rationalize going a little bit further and a little bit further and five times further, you're down in a serious material violation of law. The person looking from the outside only sees that first step and it looks tremendously innocent. Um, Josh is absolutely right. Unfortunately, the enforcement division of the SEC um, does operate in hindsight and and sees everything when it passes judgment on what you did with that first first step. Well, since I'm not an accounting major, I have to ask you all, is it required to take an ethics course when you're studying accounting? Many. And uh, I think you'll find, I mean, even if you're following you know, the Wall Street Journal, you'll see that a lot of these, I mean, not only do you have to take them from the initial get-go, but if you are licensed, you have to continue to comply and keep up on ethics and study. And you'll even see, you know, those sanctions versus KPMG and E&Y, you know, there was over $150 million that they sanctioned those firms because people weren't even completing the ethics studies or, you know, tests properly. And so um, I think that, I think that goes to show you like underneath the core of all this, if you really want to keep fraud down, like you've got to have ethical people that can stand up to kind of the scrutiny that Don's talking about where, hey, they are little decisions and they keep growing, but you've got to have somebody that has enough, I would say, I don't know if you call it a moral value or a value that they're not going to let it slide at some point, that they're going to come in and stop that. So I think there's a lot of pressure on the accounting industry and the legal industry to to be able to stand up and raise your hand when something's wrong and not let it kind of keep going down that slippery slope. And I think maybe to add on to that, and and Josh, you'll definitely understand this based on your time in practice, but I feel like in addition to having that sort of ethical foundation, having some backbone about it becomes really important. And and I remember an example, this is one of my first, you know, interactions in a month end close as a controller. And the CFO was just pounding me about you know, this expense accrual and this reserve and what about this and what about that? And a few of my staff were in there in that meeting. And, and after the CFO left, they're like, wow, Steve, he was really beating me up there. Uh, you know, does that make you feel uncomfortable? And I was like, well, yeah, a little bit. But, you know, on the one hand, CFO's not doing their job if they're not asking those kind of questions. And on the other hand, it's my job as a controller to kind of have a sense for where that line is in terms of you know, the CFO asking really reasonable questions versus, hey, I feel like they're pushing and they're fishing a little bit hard that's going to put me in a position where 
I'm going to, you know, I, I might be tempted or might be inclined to compromise one way or another. And maybe, Don, that's that first yes. step that might have seemed innocent or not that big of a deal. But then once we cross that threshold, right, uh, you know, now you're suddenly on that, you know, downhill slope. Yeah. And some corporate cultures um, feed that sense. Uh, some let you lean against it. But you know, there, there are many corporate cultures where you can see from the CEO, the CFO, they want to succeed. And there isn't an option to that. Um, so if it involves hiding a little, a uh, couple bumps in the road, um, we'll hide them. And they're little, they're immaterial. But you know, that that's what I was talking about before. Uh, there's never just one bump. And if the culture is sweep it under the rug, because it is company policy, to make us look good to the investor community. Um, that, that, that's a big trouble sign. Is there anything we can do to hold people accountable when fraud does happen? It, you know, it, it's certainly the case that the SEC is far more likely simply to go against the entity, absent some malice, some kind of malicious manipulation that that's going on. And that's unfortunate. It, it, it does send a message to individuals that they're really not in the crosshairs. Uh, that's a longstanding problem. Um, when you're in front of a judge and a jury, um, the individual can say, I wasn't in the loop. No one shared this information with me. Uh, there are so many stories that can't be rebutted by um, any form of direct uh, evidence. Uh, so it's just nightmarishly difficult to prosecute a human being when the corporation is there, the issuer is there, um, and it can't speak, and you know it doesn't have any of the kind of sway with the jury uh, that human beings can. I think, I mean, to that point, you're, the level, the level of I, I'm trying to think about how to term this, but basically, you would have to prove that the person was grossly negligent, that they knew all the facts, that they made a conscious choice to do the wrong thing, and that level to get to that level of gross negligence is incredibly challenging to prove. And to your point, there's just you just don't get down that road yeah, that often. Right. You just that that level of proof to get to gross negligence is extremely challenging and extremely rare. Yeah, and you've just made a point that I think we have to underscore going back to the to the beginning of the, of this podcast, which is if you're guesstimating the incidence of fraud, um, the one thing to me that nudges me in the direction of a higher number rather than a lower one is how relatively little we fund the resources, the regulatory resources, compared to how big the world is out there, how many numbers there are floating around, uh, and how many analysts and portfolio managers are using those numbers. It's a tiny fraction. Um, how couldn't there be? a fairly robust sense of uh, incidence of fraud out there. Uh, that to me is the number one reason for guessing uh, a little high on the number. Interesting. I wish we had more time to talk with you about the study, but before we let you go, Don, 
We typically end every episode with a fun closing question of the day. <laughs> Are you up for us asking you? Uh, you you've made me nervous, but go day. ahead. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We've been talking about numbers here and things going undetected. What's an activity that you do 10% of the time that often goes undetected? Wow. Uh, <laughs> the first thing that pops into my mind is dreams, which contain a lot of content, um, but normally get washed into some something that's completely forgotten. About 10% of the time, not. That's a great answer. A great off-the-cuff answer. That's an excellent off-the-cuff answer. <laughs> now now they, the pressure's on, Josh. I went in a different direction. I was thinking like, I mean, I'm pretty sure I do, now that I work from home, I'm pretty sure I do the laundry and wash the dishes far more than 10% of the time. But I would never, that would never get proven or be perceived or understood that way. So, Or appreciated or rewarded. Exactly. You want it to go detected. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Catherine, for my part, I feel like every time I go to uh, Costco or Sam's Club, I spend about 10% of that visit walking through the uh, the fresh fish, seafood. I have this thing for uh, grilling salmon. I've been doing that lately, and I spend way too much time looking at fish fillets while I'm at the store. And uh, I don't tell my wife. I just disappear like, hey, I got to go look at something because she started to make fun of me for uh, that fetish. So anyway, that's mine. <laughs> A little more innocent, I would say. How about you, Catherine? Oh, I'm learning all new things about you. Um, I was going to say this is probably not 10% of the time, but maybe like 1% of the time. It often goes detected when I go weekday skiing. I'll just <laughs> leave it at that. <laughs> uh, Catherine, I feel like, you know, secretly you're you're trying to jab me there just a little bit, but that it will remain undetected for Steve's uh, weekday skiing. Uh, so let's just leave it at that. <laughs> Well, thanks for your answers to that. And thanks, Don and Josh, for being here on the podcast today. All right. It was nice to be here. Yeah, definitely. And thank you, dear listener, for surfing along with us. I'm Steve Soder. That was Catherine Tsai. And this has been Off the Books, presented by Workiva. Please subscribe, leave a review, tell your buddies if you like the show. And if you're watching this on YouTube, please drop us a note in the comments. Or if you're old school like me, feel free to drop us an email at offthebooks at workiva.com. Surf's up, and we'll see you on the next wave.